Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court and CPS, co-parenting and marriage issues. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and today I've got a great guest. His name is Michael Sayan. He's written a book and he's here to tell you about it. Good evening, Michael. How are you hey. doing? Hi, Mary. Hi. I'm doing horrible. and That's why we're in this game. We don't go yes. to a hospital unless we're sick and we don't go to family court unless... Uh, uh, you know, we want to be totally destroyed and have our families ripped away from us. So, well, I'm glad you're here to talk about it. Yeah, thanks. And we're here to listen and learn because you've you've also written a book called "The Cure for Divorce in the Kingdom of God." Right. Yeah. Let me. Uh, and I asked Mary if I could uh, kind of tell you a little bit of my history. Sure. Um, walking down, and we all have our all individual histories. We have people from all different uh, sides of the world um, involved in this movement to really save families from the government, because our enemy today is not our ex-spouse, is not the the crazy spouse or the you know abusive spouse. Is our our enemy is really the government and the interjection of the government. And that was, uh, that was a warning from us, from the Federalists in the Anti-Federalist Papers back in the uh, uh, late 1700s. So uh, they warned us that uh, the government could possibly um, outgrow its bridges and um, uh, have an effect in our lives that we would turn back into Great Britain and the, uh, we, would be a, uh, we would have a tyrannical type government and that's where we're going. And that is where, because when government gains more power, people gain more power, um, we grow more like the country that we fled back in the 1600s each day. Oh, I can see that. I can see that. Um, there's just so much wrong with the system. The system is broken and we're all paying for it. Right. And, the, uh, and, and it was really interesting because back in the days, when we were putting together the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and fighting from Great Britain and the, um, the tyranny, uh, uh, the human, um, our you know, inalienable rights being uh, basically torn away from us, our human rights violations by the king and by the king's courts, because the king appointed judges and paid the judges that were here in America. Um, and they basically, that's how the King of England uh, was able to tax us, was able to uh, control the United States. It was through the courts and through, uh, and you'll see that in the Declaration of Independence, one of the, um, uh, the great things that we speak about, there's a, a listing of abuses that we give, enumerated uh, abuses that we give for the king of why we're going to separate from him after many, many warnings. And one of them is the abuse of the judicial system, how he paid and how he's able to control the judges. Because if you control the judges, you control the law. And if you control the law, you control the government. And, um, and that's one of the fears of the Democratic Party today, uh, as they're starting to realize that legislations in Congress are not writing our laws, who writing our laws are really the judges, and they're legislating from the bench, meaning they're making doctrines, um, uh, or what we would call a stare decisis, or presidents, um, they're, making, uh, they're making decisions that turn into basically law, because as their decisions is passed, from courthouse to courthouse, from federal to state, um, we're basically being ruled by the very judges that were that were appointed, and so that's why the that's why there's such a big um, whoop-de-do right now, uh, and looking at the uh, you know filling of the Supreme Court uh, seats. Yes, um, it's um, where the best interests of the child. Um, supersede their parental rights, and the judges don't care. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, parents having problems with that. The best, uh, the uh, best interest of the child standards. That actually was nothing more than extension of parents partray. The Latin term that was designed in around 1608, um, in England, brought over to the United States. Parents partray was a horrible doctrine that because in England we had the king was sovereign. So 
we bring over laws from England. However, we can't bring over the supremacy from England. Um, and uh, it's called the Leviathan, um, uh, Leviathan Doctrine, where, where the, the king has ultimate control, the government has ultimate control. Um, and that's how the people are kept in line. Um, so what happens are many of our laws uh, were brought over from England to the United States. As a matter of fact, all of our laws were. That's where we get our legal system from. Um, but there was some awful doctrines that were birthed from England and brought over to the United States. And one of them was parents partray. And parents partray is a Latin term for that the nation is the parent of the child. And so what would happen is the nation being the parent of the child, they would activate it only when they believe that the nation um, had to decide what was in the best interest of their children, their children, meaning you're my children. So uh, parents parte doctrine would supersede parental rights in England. And that wasn't a problem with them because you deal with, with supremacy. But here in the United States, where we the people have supremacy, we're running into huge problems because parents partray doctrine uh, is superseding um, constitutional rights of the parent. Well, this is uh, just not a good thing. And I know of someone, I don't know who it was, that said the judiciary would be the downfall of this country. And I don't know, I can't, I don't know who quoted it or said it, but it's happening. <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, and that happened because what happened was one of the interesting parts was when the United States was coming as a nation, we decided to rebel from uh, Great Britain and we formed the Declaration of Independence where we declared our independence from Great Britain. We also, we did two things on the Declaration of Independence. We established our government, number one, uh, we established a type of federalism, which I'll explain. And then number two, uh, what we did is we promised, the government promised, or the signers of the Declaration of Independence representing our new government, promised that it would protect our inalienable rights and not become tyrannical as, as England was to the United States in the late 1700s. Um, so it promised us certain unalienable provisions that we will, which unalienable rights are nothing more than your human, natural, God-given rights um, that are uh, that are not given to you, but that you have before the actual formation of the government or state. And they basically recognize those rights, and they recognize those rights are not given to you, but they're they're uh, um, they're inherited from God. Um, the uh, uh, some people want to know where unalienable. Uh, word or inalienable uh, word comes from. Uh, unalienable is non-transferable. So un, non, inalienable, transferable. It's a uh, third century BCE term. It's a real estate term. It means non-transferable that they would use uh, dealing with real estate or land or property uh, that wouldn't be able to be transferred from one party to the next. So unalienable rights means that uh, these are rights that can't be taken away by due process. However, we have a problem because on the Constitution, we have supposedly unalienable rights protected, but it says, it has a caveat in there, and it says, hey, life, liberty, and property can't be taken from you except by due process. So the due process is, is the conditional clause that offers the government to supersede your God-given natural human rights. And this is a violation of the Declaration of Independence and people realize this in the early part of our constitution and jury system. And the argument for the Declaration of Independence has been used in over 100 United States Supreme Court cases as of to date. It's a, it's a looked at as a contract. It's called a unilateral social, social contract. Mm -hmm. It's a contract that the government has for its people. However, um, the courts don't look at it as a contract, they look at it only as an important piece of, of document. Um, so what happens is the, uh, your inalienable rights really have zero protections in any kind of jury system. That's how come you can't argue your inalienable rights, even in the Supreme Court, because though it's recognized in spirit, it's not um, protected by law or by contract. That's a little bit more technical, but that those are important things to know because people still want to argue the inalienable rights in courts. 
But as time goes on, um, where those inalienable right protections are fading away. So now the arguments against inalienable rights, um, you'll probably only hear about that. Uh, uh, those arguments are, uh, had to do with children who are not yet born. And there's a lot of arguments in the state Supreme Court and the federal Supreme Court as far as the inalienable right of children to be able to live outside the womb. But besides that, you're not going to hear inalienable rights, and especially in regards to the parent-child relationship. That has gone away. Okay. Um, I know what we were talking earlier, like back in 1969, things started changing, and there was a child standard statute. Um, we were talking over the uh, constitution, constitutional um, rights, unalienable social contracts. I think that's what we were talking about, like the 14th right, well, and 15th Amendment. Right. So it's, a, it's kind of important to understand how the Constitution and your amendments and your unalienable rights work. So the Declaration of Independence was a was a mission statement of the government. It, uh, it was saying, hey, we promise that we are a government. We're an independent government. Um, we uh, give a list of abuses of the king. Um, and then also we promise that we're going to protect human rights. Now, there was not enumerated, meaning it was not numbered. It didn't give a list of those rights. Well, what happened was as uh, time, as that happened uh, about 10 years later, uh, we decided, okay, we need to act upon that mission statement, the Declaration of Independence, the establishment of our, uh, of our government, and uh, the protection of inalienable rights. We have to figure out how this new system or how this new government's going to work, right? We made the promise, right? We gave the Declaration of Independence. You know, we won the war. You know, now it's time to actually, you know, put our foot where our mouth is. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution was a design to actually do that. The Constitution was wonderfully, wonderfully drafted. Um, great men's they talked about it just it, it was it was actually amazing the amount of research and literature you can see this uh, when you look up federalist papers and the anti-federalist papers you can see um, these were people that were um, representing one party or the other either the federalist or the anti-federalist um, uh, movement and they would basically print in a newspaper their position to kind of educate the people and the people to have a say on how they think this is government should work because they wanted to keep the supremacy to the people. Um, and federalism is basically saying the federal government has power over the people. We grant them the power over us. However, their power over us is enumerated in few, meaning that they only have very few enumerated powers. If it's not specifically mentioned in the, uh, in the constitution, uh, if their power is not mentioned in the Constitution, uh, that means that the federal government doesn't have that power. Now, it says, uh, it tells us in the uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th uh, Amendment that, uh, uh, that uh, any power not mentioned is reserved for the people in the states. So that means that whatever is not specifically enumerated in the Constitution for the power of the federal government, that the, the rest of the power has to be divided between the states and the people. So when that happened, they're like, well, how can we run, you know, how can we run this nation where we, the people, have sovereignty? We have inalienable rights. Um, so this was a, uh, uh, as they designed the Constitution itself, and then eventually they got it ratified, one of the deals was that the, um, the Federalists are the ones who put together the Constitution of the United States. And the Anti-Federalists were the ones who were kind of opposing it. Uh, so the Federalists said, hey, we'll put together this Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists said, well, hey, we want to make sure that the federal government doesn't come uh, too powerful, uh, just like England was. And so the, uh, the Federalists promised that, hey, after we ratify the Constitution, we'll go back and we'll create um, uh, amendments that will, that will protect the people. Basically, the inalienable and inalienable rights of the people um, we'll go ahead and, and guarantee those after we get the Constitution ratified. So after the Constitution was ratified, shortly after, they came up with the, uh, the Ten Amendments, and that's why they're called the Ten Amendments or the Bill of Rights, because they were added later, they were amended later. Um, so they were amended later, but it became problematic 
because in 1833, uh, the United States uh, Supreme Court said, well, you know what, the added Bill of Rights, the amended rights, they don't apply to the states, meaning that the states don't have to adhere to, to their citizens or the, their people's um, uh, uh, rights that are mentioned. The Bill of Rights, the United States Supreme Court said the Bill of Rights is only for the federal government, is to protect the federal government from uh, superseding the state's power. Uh, I know that's really uh, kind of hard, hard to understand, but in a nutshell, what the uh, United States Supreme Court did is saying that, that hey, uh, only the federal government has to honor a Bill of Rights. The states do not. And so the starting from 1833 until the next 14th Amendment, uh, the individual had zero rights from abuses of the state. And the state could abuse an individual's rights and human rights till the cows came home all the way until 1876, where the 14th Amendment was added and that was to uh, include uh, some of the human rights protections to the states or require the states to protect those. And that was designed because it was part of the uh, slavery amendments to, uh, uh, that the federal government had to step in saying, hey, you states, you need to protect, you know, blacks, colors, and people of all races um, from, uh, mm -hmm. from abusing your power or allowing slavery uh, to, to continue on. Wow, that's a lot of information. It's it's so fascinating that history went this way, and and it's just it's just going where the the from the civil rights to the parental rights, things just seem to be crumbling lately, or right, or they and, have been. That's right, and, and the, some of the dissensions in the Supreme Court rulings, they actually said one of the dissensions. Um, I believe it was Justice Scalia. Uh, I could be wrong there, it might have been Stephen, but uh, one of them said that, hey, the uh, parent-child relationship or the parent-child is not an inalienable right. Um, it's not protected by the Bill of Rights. It's not protected by the ten, uh, any of the Ten Amendments. Um, I don't want to go uh, in too much more detail, even though it's important to say on the 14th Amendment, uh, life, liberty, and property was the only things that the federal government required the states to protect of its citizens, for the state citizens. Um, however, what the Supreme Court had said, because of some of the wording in the 14th Amendment, uh, it was called an inclusionary doctrine. And this inclusionary doctrine said, the Supreme Court said, well, the other amendments, um, uh, the, the one, uh, one through 10, uh, the, the Bill of Rights, should apply to the people by the kind of the language that's used in the 14th Amendment. So what they said was, hey, um, as Supreme Court cases come before us and we include those rights under the 14th Amendment, uh, then that uh, amendment applies to the people uh, from, to protection from state abuses. Now, the reason why that's important because number one, all the Bill of Rights do not apply to us. That means that, that your state, um, there's some things that your state can violate um, that the, tenet, uh, the first 10 amendments still does not apply to, to you um, because the Supreme Court has not included it in there or they didn't really think that it was necessary. Now, the majority of them have. However, what we do is we have an interesting caveat and people need to understand this because this is very important, is that the first 10 amendments that were created, they were designed to be unalienable rights. There is no conditional clause. Like it doesn't say, hey, you have freedom of the press uh, but by due process, or you don't have freedom of religion, but by due process. The only due process clause was mentioned was in the fifth and the 14th amendment. Those are the, and other than that, all of your rights were considered unalienable. But what happened was after the 14th amendment and the inclusionary doctrine saying that, hey, we'll start including these under the 14th amendment. Therefore, they started to apply the due process clause to every single amendment or right that you have. So they'll say, oh yeah, you have freedom of religion um, only by due process, which means you don't have any freedom of religion until they say you have it in a due process setting. Does that make sense? Yes. 
And the reason why that's scary, because what it does is it, it adds a conditional clause to all of our inalienable rights. So we have zero inalienable rights right now. All of our inalienable rights, life, liberty, property, everything, uh, freedom of religion, press, anything, you name it, um, is all under the 14th Amendment, which says, hey, you only have these rights after or when the state says you have it after a, uh, after a hearing you know, or after a trial. And the problem with these is that we have the protections for the jury trial to be judged by our peers. But now as the courts, they're, they're fading away from this. Um, and the family court, specifically juvenile court and so forth. And so what that means is that you're not getting, um, uh, you're not getting um, litigated by a jury of your peers, which is to protect you, but you're being litigated by somebody in the government who has a probably or a possibly a bias slant um, towards power. And uh, this is just, like I said, it's become an evil, evil empire uh, because the, when you understand the, uh, uh, going back a little bit in history, when you understand the Magna Carta, the Magna Carta was originally designed under, under knife point um, to the king because the lords uh, were getting, uh, basically the king was overtaxing and overcontrolling the people through the, the judicial system, through their traveling judges. And, the, and he was becoming extremely rich. Well, what happens was the lords of the land said, hey, we had enough. Um, and then basically by knife point, they made the king sign the uh, Magna Carta saying that, wait a minute, you, two things. Number one, the king also has to obey the laws. And then number two, we're going to be only judged by our peers and not judged by you or any of your governmental officials who you either could pay off or has um, 100% judicial immunity. Um, but what happened was these courts of... Um, these courts of equity are basically courts of supremacy came from England um, that they disbanded in 1875. We actually started our family court in 1910 under a, under a false system. Um, and we're giving our judges complete supremacy. Uh, and that's why we're not, uh, we're not able to get our, our, uh, our uh, rights protected in the state uh, appellate courts or the Supreme court because um, when it comes to discretion, uh, the judges have 100% not only immunity, but they have supremacy as well. And the, the uh, state courts and the higher courts are just not overturning these lower courts' decisions. Well, this is terrible because I have been in court myself with like no due process. <laughs> it has been a nightmare in the family court system. Correct. And the, the question is, who's going to protect your due process? Right? They say due process, but what does it mean? Now, due process literally only means procedural due process. That means that um, you have the same, uh, you should have the same rights afforded to you procedurally as other people uh, in your community. Now, if you, uh, uh, however, it's not substantive. Uh, due process, meaning that it doesn't have any substance. It's just basically, are you following the court's rules and procedures, right? But as mm -hmm. we know, the court can, uh, the judge can abuse discretion anytime he wants in a family court setting or juvenile court or child protection service setting. Um, and that's because, number one, there's no oversight. Uh, and that's, again, we're looking at uh, courts of equity are based off of the king's courts of supremacy. Uh, that's where they came from, England. It came from the king's court. The, king, the courts of the chancery were actually the keeper of the king's conscience. That was the nickname. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were, uh, they were a direct line from the supremacy of the king or the direct authority of the king himself. So they were designed so that our judges have complete, not only immunity, but complete supremacy. Um, and that's how come our upper uh, courts will not challenge a discretionary decision of the lower courts. If the judge makes a decision based on discretion, not based on hard law or the rule of law, the appellate courts and your uh, state Supreme Court simply will not overturn them. Now, secondly, on the due process, so hey, just going to court is due process. Uh, the United States Supreme Court had said uh, in one of its rulings that uh, due process includes both procedural and substantive. And when it's dealing with a fundamental right, the United States Supreme Court said that uh, it's, since it's substantive, 
means that you should have uh, your fundamental rights should be protected under the highest, uh, highest, the highest level of scrutiny possible. Uh, that means with little, uh, little uh, government influence, uh, and also to be able to look at critically, and to be able to be um, that when they make a ruling on you, it's the least uh, restrictive means possible. And it's, it's to give you the greatest uh, preference towards your rights or human rights. So the Supreme Court is saying, yes, you know, hey, the people have uh, these inalienable rights, mm. but the lower courts are not protecting them. Now, the problem is, is the reason why we don't have any judicial oversight in the federal courts is because something called the Rooker-Fieldman Doctrine uh, domestic relations exemptions, uh, ex parte young and young ab abstention. Uh, these are some things that are doctrines and so forth that was basically a, an extension of the 11th Amendment. So the 11th Amendment says states have supremacy over the federal government and the federal government shall not interfere with state court's decisions. That's the 11th Amendment. Well, the problem is, is the 14th Amendment says just the opposite. The 14th Amendment says the federal government has the right to interfere with state court decisions if it's in a violation of your life, liberty, or property, which when you're dealing with family court, that's exactly what you're dealing with. You're dealing with violations of human rights. So you're not looking at your people are not concerned about losing their boat and losing their house. They're concerned about losing their children and losing their family. Um, so, the so the lower federal courts, the district courts and the circuit courts are not taking cases because what they do is they're claiming, they're claiming, they're throwing the, the flag of federalism up in the air and they're saying federalism, federalism, and therefore we don't have to hear any of your state court violations of due process in your state courts uh, anytime that it's a uh, completed decision. And they're screaming federalism, they're saying 11th Amendment, 11th Amendment. And everyone else is going along with that. Um, and the problem is, is that legislation or Congress are the ones who are supposed to make laws to protect our 14th Amendment under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. But however, they are not. Legislation and government being, in, uh, being directed, supported, and, and really guided by the American Bar Association uh, uh, and also the women's rights uh, associations as well, but more about the Bar Association. Uh, they are not passing any kind of law that's uh, really not supported by the bar that's going to protect our due process rights, protected to us or uh, promised to us in the 14th Amendment. I know that's a lot. Did you get any of that? Yeah, I did. It's very, uh, that uh, Rooker-Feldman doctrine was a bad decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that should not have happened. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Rooker-Feldman is, is, is that the, the question when it comes to Rooker-Feldman is, who has supremacy? Is the state have supremacy or does the federal government have supremacy? Now, when the United States was designed, we the people had supremacy. The state were seconds and the federal government was looked at as third or enumerated powers. Um, the problem is when the 14th Amendment was established, it reversed federalism. So it's very important to repeat, the 14th Amendment reversed federalism, and what it did is it gave the federal government power to uh, supersede the state's supremacy in any violations of life, liberty, and property, which is almost anything. That makes sense? So the federal yes. government, originally by the Constitution, had enumerated, enumerated and few powers that were mentioned in the Constitution, and they were very, very specific. But however, when the 14th Amendment came, it became very, um, very vague, right? Life, liberty, and property, that's a very vague concept. Uh, and so that vague concept was given to the federal government. So the federal government, by the 14th Amendment, reversed federalism, gave itself supremacy, and, uh, and by that, uh, it, gave itself the power to supersede state laws. Um, but the problem is, is that federal government doesn't want to handle all of our divorce cases and custody cases. They simply do not want to handle it. And because of that, they're claiming, the federal government is claiming, oh, uh, we believe in the 11th Amendment. You know, we believe in federalism. Um, and we'll only activate the 14th Amendment when Congress says so or when they legislate it to be. Um, 
And so basically, they're basically saying, hey, we got all the power. However, um, we're not going to use it unless it's in our best benefit. And then it's it's turns into the best interest of the child. It just goes kind of, you know, with with CPS was designed for child well, trafficking. Right. Well, what happened, right? And the, the important part is to know when you, when you understand history, you can understand a lot. So when you look at understand the best interest of the child standards, where did that vague concept come from? Well, it actually came from a parents' parte doctrine, Latin term in, back in the 1600s. So what happened was the nation, the courts of equity, there was two courts in uh, England. They had common law courts, which were traveling courts, and they also had courts of equity uh, that were later designed to be uh, the king's court. Uh, later became the Lord of the Chancery, the Chancery Courts. These are courts that uh, people in high position uh, in both government and the church held. So it was, uh, they basically were either bishops or having a high position both in government and the church. They would use canon law and civil law uh, or what we would say maximums of equity. And they would use these principles of um, morality and ethics to make their decisions when it came to, to, uh, to the equitable, equitable courts. However, the equitable courts didn't handle divorce or childcare. Uh, the courts of equity, um, uh, or I should say basically the Church of England uh, handled divorce and the distribution of children and property of divorce uh, and marriage, all of it in England uh, up until 1857. Uh, and then what happened was in the early 1830s, the women's right movement started to come up in England, they wanted the ability to be able to supersede the church doctrine that didn't allow women to initiate divorce or to divorce their husbands. And they cried to parliament. So parliament took the power of divorce away from the church to be able to grant to women the power to be able to divorce their husband under extreme uh, cases of, um, of adultery. So what happened was when the government took control of the divorce, then we're starting to look about these, these separation of children. But in the 1600s in England, um, the government wanted to be able to step in for abuse or neglect. And so what the, and, and, and children were under property laws, uh, children, wives, and slaves were under property laws, laws in England and in the United States till about the uh, beginning of the 1800s, about 1830s, 1850s, uh, most states. So they were under the property law. So um, what happened was the state really couldn't intervene. Um, right, you heard of um, the uh, uh, rule of thumb. You, you know where that derived from, right? I do not know. Okay, so the rule of thumb was, uh, was, a, was a twitch or a stick that you could beat your wife with. But the, oh. the, the law said that, that that stick couldn't be thicker than your thumb. So the, so the rule of thumb was, um, hey, you could beat your wife as long as you didn't leave a mark and as long as that twitch wasn't bigger than your thumb. So that was back in the uh, 1600s all the way to the 1800s and even before that uh, because really wives and children were considered property. Wives couldn't buy land. They couldn't make contracts. And they were just, they were just considered a legal extension of the husband. So what happened was is as the women's liberation happened in England, in the early 1800s, 1820s, 1830s, and eventually in, in America in the 1830s and on, uh, the women wanted to have, um, be able to say, hey, we want rights. Um, and so in America, women were saying, hey, we want constitutional rights because how can we be looked at as property or the man's property under what's called a coveture laws uh, that was under common law and that was based on biblical principles of headship and submission and they said wait a minute how can we be uh you know how can we have constitutional rights if we don't even uh if we're underneath the you know the property rights of our husband so as the women were starting to rebel from their husband and starting to rebel from natural family life that's where we also started to see in 1870 uh, where the Child Protection Services kind of was birthed. Um, and it was actually really birthed. It was, it was a, an individual, uh, Mary Ellen, you'll probably hear about her in Child Protection Services. 1970, she, you know, um, she, was a, she was a Christian. Uh, I believe she was a teacher. She saw a young girl about 11 years old was being malnourished and beaten every day. And so she went to the police 
she said, police, why don't you go ahead and look into this matter and see this girl? She's totally getting beat, you know, beaten up. She's getting neglected. And the police says, well, children fall under property rights. And we really can't do anything against parents unless we catch them in the act because uh, abuse and neglect are, you know, are criminal actions, but they have to be, you know, they, there's a strict, you have to have witnesses, right? You're under a, a higher level of evidence. So the, uh, um, the lady who was looking at the Mary Ellen case, she went to the uh, uh, two gentlemen that were in charge of New York uh, of, of uh, the prevention of, of, uh, of um, abuses of animals or the rights of animals. And uh, she went to them and she asked them for their help. And from them, they created a society that looked into um, the abuse of children. Then eventually they asked for more help. They went to the state which you never should go to the state, but they looked for the state for more funding and more right. And as this, then they eventually, eventually was regulated through the federal government in the early 1900s, then eventually grew to the child protection services that you see today. So what started off as innocent um, became a catastrophe as the government found a way to get into the individual's homes. Right. And, a lot of people are saying, don't even let CPS into your home. Yeah, you and it's, be... it's, a, it's, it's, it's a horrible <laughs> two-sided because um, the way it is right now is that they know that if you don't let them in the home, right, the, uh, they're pretty much rubber, st the, the judges are pretty much A, the rubber stamping um, all these uh, warrants. Two, uh, the police are going to, uh, going to be able to help the child protection services with or without a warrant. They don't care. Um, and, and they have laws that say that, hey, if they walk into a situation and they believe that there's an extreme dangerous situation that they can enter without a warrant. Um, and, uh, and also because many parents don't know about this, uh, these laws and, and their rights, is that when a child protection services walks up and says, hey, um, I have a verbal order, you know, a uh, verbal warrant uh, from the judge that says you need to hand me over to your children. We'll just look them over for the day. You'll more than likely get your child tomorrow. However, if you don't give us your child today and they're coming with a police officer who's armed with weapons, they says, if you don't give us your child today, um, you better believe that we're going to come by force tomorrow. And, you'll, you know, you'll be looked at as a, a parent who's not, you know, a, a working with the government. And obviously you have something to hide. So most parents who are in this situation for the first time, um, they will give their child to the child protection services without a warrant. And once you do that legally, you're, it's considered legally considered surrendering your child to the child protection services. And it's the same as if you walked to child protection services and you dropped your baby at the door and you walked away. It is called surrendering your child. So if you give your child to a child protection services person, even if they promise it's just for a day, or even if they promise that there's a verbal, you know, warrant somewhere out there, or there's a warrant and, you know, it's just not, you know, it's signed, but it's a bench warrant and they just don't have it with them or whatever they claim. If, uh, if they take your child there, it's considered that you have, um, you have voluntarily surrendered your child to the government and there's almost no chance you're going to get your child back because once you surrender your child voluntarily, um, it's almost impossible to get your child back from that point. This is just a disgrace because all we're hearing about now is child trafficking and those numbers are growing even more and it doesn't seem like there's going to be an end to this. And no, it's not. It's, it's, and we know it's going to get worse because what's, um, what's really important that a lot of people, our activists might be familiar with what I'm saying, but what they're not activist or what they're not uh, knowledgeable of is how the United Nations is handling uh, protection of children or the best interest of the child standards. And what they're doing is they're trying to emancipate their children. Um, and children, um, they've been practicing the best interest of the child longer than what we have. But through the best interest of the child standards that they have through this UNCRC or the Conventions of the Rights of the Child, um, they are uh, basically doing everything that we're doing, but doing it way worse. Um, so, and the government is going in and taking these children um, at a moment's notice. You'll hear it's really bad in the UK as well right now. Um, and so, uh, it's the United States has a little bit of a rule of law, but the problem is, is when you have a court of equity, 
right? The rule of law only exists in a court of law, not a court of equity. Uh, juvenile courts, family courts are 100% courts of equity. They're not courts of law, and they will tell you that. That means they don't follow the rule of law. So that's why the best interest of the child standards are so vague because what it's designed to do is to give that judge 100% discretion. Now, what the government is doing is taking, uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of a money trap going on right now. And the money trap says to the, uh, to the states because of Title IV defunding that gives basically 60 cents on the dollar for uh, uh, every dollar that the state spends on uh, being able to get you know, involved with child protection services or to be able to collect uh, monies in arrears from uh, from uh, um, from uh, uh, from parents who are supposed to pay child support. Mm -hmm. What happens mm -hmm. is that uh, the uh, there's a big, big, huge pool of money. I think uh, I think uh, in my state, in Minnesota, they give out uh, they have a pool of money of 17.5 billion dollars every year uh, that's given to the child protection services, and the federal government is paying the majority of that. So the, the pressure for the state is, is that the only rule for the federal courts to give this money to the states is the federal government says, well, whatever your numbers were last year of taking children out of the home, they have to be the same or greater. Now, if they're not the same or greater, that will drastically affect how much of the millions of dollars every state gets from the federal government every year. And so the states are afraid not to have those numbers low. So when Child Protective Services tells you there's not a quota, that's not true. The quota is that the state has a certain number of children that they have to match from last year. Otherwise, they lose millions of dollars or possibly millions of dollars every year um, in uh, federal funding uh, to be able to. And so what happens is when the state says, okay, you know, and they get blank checks. These checks, these checks don't have to be spent solely on child protection services or be uh, spent on collection of, of, of funds in the rear. They can be spent on your local highways, you know, as far as what I'm understanding. They can be spent on anything. They're just really a blank check given by the federal government. So the state becomes dependent on these, uh, these numbers and these checks from the federal government to be able to uh, give you the quality of life that you live today. And by that, um, the states say, well, we don't care what happens to the children after we take them from them. We just need people to take them from them so we get the funding from the federal government. So what happens is, is basically the state approving, uh, all the states approving uh, children to be taken away from the home for little to no um, uh, violation or abuse or neglect. However, who's looking after those children after the state allows them to be taken is that's no man's game. So you're looking at um, people who, once they're involved in the foster care system, uh, the, uh, these children are pretty much abused and neglect from the very get-go because the state doesn't care because the state has already has its money. Does that make sense? Yes. And the federal government's not going to be at fault because they claim federalism that the states are allowed to abuse life, liberty, and property without the federal involvement. So the federal government is not going to get involved in state human rights. Um, uh, violations. So the important thing to know is that our unpromised inalienable rights from the Declaration of Independence stopped existing in 1833 on the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court ruling, when they said the states don't have to honor um, the uh, your uh, Bill of Rights. So from 1833 on to today, uh, the states have been abusing their power, and the federal government, because of federalism. Uh, and the 11th Amendment, they're not, um, they're not overturning bad state court decisions. So technically, there are just, there's no parental rights. Technically, there aren't any. There is no human rights. And that's the important thing to realize is that parental rights are part of human rights. So the unalienable rights is a human right, right? You have the rule of law, which is like, a, um, you can see those in criminal court cases, the United States Supreme Courses and federal courts. However, when it starts to becoming fall under human rights, um, it becomes a little bit tricky because under human rights, it falls under the 14th Amendment due process. But however, the federal government says, 
well, the state can do whatever they want and we're not going to touch them. And the state's saying, hey, you know, um, uh, we don't have to really give you due process because we have zero oversight and we're protected by 100% judicial immunity. Um, and we're not being sued in the federal courts under the 42 USC 1983. Um, uh, that's not uh, effectively going through those lawsuits. So they're going through with 100% immunity. And plus, if you sue an individual, you're only going to be suing the state. So those people individually usually are not going to lose any money um, personally, uh, even though those federal uh, lawsuits were supposed to be able to sue somebody directly. But realistically, like if you sue the Child Protective Services for violating your rights, um, you'll just get money from the state. And basically all the tax money, you just get your tax money back and other people's tax money. So they're, they're, they don't really have um, any consequence for any other sense. There's no consequence for them violating your human rights. So we have zero human rights in the United States. And that's all this, uh, happened because of the states, um, uh, because of the basically the, uh, the 1833 ruling of the Supreme Court and, the, uh, and after the 14th Amendment, the federal government just refusing to help us out. And the, uh, so, Recently, you probably heard this. So President Trump um, was appalled that when he heard that there's, you know, about 500,000 children in the foster care system right now. And the way that the foster kids, uh, foster systems uh, um, run right now is that legally, if children go missing, you know, stolen, uh, runaways, mm -hmm. anything, if they go missing legally, they don't have to report the children missing. Uh, so there's many cases of these children who are being sexually exploited, uh, who are being stolen, who are being sold, um, and other things. Uh, as a matter of fact, right now, if you look at the, high, the, the nation that uh, has the highest uh, uh, sex trafficking, uh, the United States is number one. So the United States is the, the, the highest ranking for sex trafficking of our children. Well, that's... I just don't know what to say. It's just very discouraging that this is happening it's gone on for so long and we can't control it is there a way to control it How, so what happened yeah right here, yeah and what happens is i was talking to the, the director of parentalrights.org um and uh and i was talking to the director the other day um i talked to i talked to a good number of people just because of um, i'm an author and, and the book i wrote and and just people are really friendly but uh all in all uh the parentalrights.org they realize that if you look at any kind of movement, such as the uh, women's suffrage movement or the civil rights movement, um, they realized that changing the laws wasn't going to do anything. They realized that they had to make an amendment. You had to amend the Constitution to be able to, you know, for women to have the right to vote or for blacks to have, you know, the freedoms that they have today um, through the, uh, so the, they amended the Constitution. So the parentalrights.org, they're trying to put through uh, a, uh, a parental amendment um, through. However, this is very, very unsuccessful so far. Um, they're putting a lot of effort into it. They're talking with legislators, they're talking with Congress, but they're really not getting anywhere the support that they need. Um, and they're getting a big pushback. And surprisingly, the, the people who are pushing back are the American Bar Association and the National Organization of Women and some other federal uh, feminist groups. But it's important to realize that 60% of Congress as of today are um, bar certified. Now remember, bar is a certification. Um, it is not a license. You are licensed through the state to be an attorney or, or a lawyer, but you are um, certified through a basically like a club med of lawyers that was designed, I think originally in New York around 1875. Um, and it's basically, it's a monopoly on, on, on law. And so these Monopoly on Law, which was basically a private organization, this is not a government organization, the bar is not government, it's private, and we have to pay dues. And with these dues, they're able to control the law. And right now, the, uh, the Bar Association is the number one proponent against 50-50 shared custody, unilateral, no, fighting against unilateral no-fault divorce, um, uh, fighting against any kind of change in Congress or the legislative regarding family or uh, divorce or child protection services. Um, and uh, they're, they're claiming that they're doing it for our own good, but they have a very hard liberal agenda and they're very open about it. 
it's just uh it's overwhelming it's just all overwhelming i'm glad you wrote this book when did you decide to write this book so this this book is a it's a theological doctrine on looking at uh divorce and remarriage in the first century church what it does is it takes a look at the ancient israel jewish marriage practices from the old testament and and some of the uh uh, uh, just some of the, the practices that they would have, uh, customs that they would have in, in Israel. And these were based on unilateral laws, uh, such as mm. bride prices and dowry, and, and the father giving away the bride. Uh, and the women wouldn't have the right to be able to initiate a divorce because of the bride price, um, because, you know, the women were acquired through the bride price and the, the authority of the father was transferred to the young man. So they didn't have, uh, because of the authority, uh, they didn't have the ability to divorce their husbands. Well, what happened was the um, Romans had Roman occup occupation uh, occupied Israel in the first century. So what we see is like in the biblical times, uh, in the New Testament time, uh, we see Israel has unilateral laws in regards to marriage and divorce. Uh, however, uh, Greco-Roman or the Romans had a bilateral system. Uh, and through this bilateral system, women were allowed to initiate divorce. Uh, and so what happened, there was a clash between the, the unilateral system and the bilateral system, basically patriarchy and feminism in the first century church between the Jews and the Greeks. Now, I know that's a lot, but with that, uh, what we did was there, um, I went and spoke to a few, uh, spoke to, I spoke to like a law professor and a lot of other theologians. And what we did is we looked at um, unilateral and bilateral contract law and how it clashes, and then we were able to see a lot of the similarities in the first century church. So now this is not applicable for family court. Um, this is applicable for the, the churches and the pastors to be able to look at, hey, how do we look at, how do we, uh, how do we have a patriarchal Bible, and how do we exercise that in a egalitarian world or a feminist world? Um, and it's because the same thing happened in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as Paul had to deal with Jews and Gentiles with different ideologies. But um, through that study, I was able to take a lot of the history um, as well as contract law, and I was able to apply those concept, uh, concepts to the uh, unilateral social contract of the Declaration of Independence and the unilateral social contract of the completion by the Constitution. The Constitution is, is basically a completion of the Declarations of Independence's promises. So I was able to apply that stuff, and from there, with a little bit of historical research and asking people questions, hopefully are getting a little bit better idea of how we got into this mess. Is there any way to get out of it? And the, the simple answer is no. As long as we have courts of equity uh, dealing with family court, we have zero um, judicial protections. The federal government's not gonna protect us. The state government's gonna abuse us. Um, the Child Protection Services is gonna make tons of buckloads of money off of our children. Um, and uh, unilateral no-fault divorce, women are gonna use unilateral no-fault divorce and are just gonna divorce their husband at the high rate of divorce that they're doing right now at 83%. So it's going to be, we're going to be looking at a complete destroyed America in a very, very short period of time. Unilateral no-fault divorce came from uh, Russia uh, in 1910 under Marxism. So that's unilateral no-fault divorce was designed in Marxism and basically almost destroyed the country. Uh, and they had to really reverse their unilateral no-fault divorce laws because of, they saw the, the even under Marxism and socialism, uh, uh, and even though they wanted the family unit destroyed, they realized that their nation was going with it and it was out of control. Um, unfortunately, the United States did not learn our lesson. And the lawyers who knew the law and knew the history took advantage of the history, took advantage of us uh, and put us in a situation that we can't reverse, you know, we can't reverse unilateral no-fault divorce. We can't reverse child protection services. We can't reverse um, uh, the federal government to help us out in protect our, our human rights or, or protect our life, liberty, and property or, or bad state court judgments. Uh, uh, we, there's, there's no way for us to get out of this. Um, and we are trying very, very hard uh, to change legislation, to get uh, uh, rulings in the federal court cases and the Supreme Court cases and state Supreme Court cases. Um, and we're going to keep on fighting and we're going to keep on inching and inching. However, um, the liberal agenda is growing way too fast. The government is great gaining way too, too much power and we're getting only little teeny strides of accomplishments. 
And so if you look at 10, 20 years down the road, going at the rate that we're going today, there will not be any more America left. Right. And I read somewhere that the birth rates are dropping as well. well. Yeah, right. For, right. Yeah. For, uh, 40% of all uh, children uh, in, in the black community are born out of wedlock. 40%. Um, and so what happens is that you, uh, when you're dealing with having children born out of wedlock, you're having uh, divorces that are over 50%. And then you also have, since 1980, you had uh, cohabitation increase 900%. When you start putting those statistics together, people realize it's not safe to have, uh, to have children anymore because the family unit was designed to protect the child to be raised in a secure and nurturing environment with both the mother and father because the father has to work by the sweat of his brow all day and all night. That was designed. And the woman was to stay at home and to be able to feed, take care, and nurture, and to protect the child uh, uh, and to be able to um, uh, control the house and, and so forth and, and bless the house. And so the father and mother had individual roles that blessed the entire family. However, um, uh, a father cannot raise a child all by himself. And a mother can't raise a child all by herself um, as much as we would like. You can't do it even in today's society. Child Protection Services knows this, and they're able to take out children by the thousands if not uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe almost, a, I think a million right now, a million children are taken out of the home, I think, by Child Protective Services every year. Mm -hmm. Right now in the United States is a million. Um, so, because uh, they, they realize that you simply can't have a nurturing family unit with one parent. And the problem is, is that statistically, when, uh, when you start getting in step-parents and half-parents and half-siblings, we start to see uh, sexual abuse being raised. We start to see that raise really high. Um, and so because the step-parents don't have a, a natural affection or a natural connection to these children um, statistically, and so we're seeing a lot of uh, children who are being sexually raped. I think it's um, uh, one in four by somebody who's a, is either a family member or a close family member. Um, so I... Uh, it's the uh, statistics are just horrendous. Now there's no one who's going to love a child like their parent. And Jesus spoke about this, right? Jesus said, um, you know, who's going to protect the sheep? You know, is it going to be the shepherd or is it going to be the hireling? And Jesus said, I assure you that when the wolf comes, the hireling will run because he right. cares about his own life. And he goes, but not the good shepherd. The good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And who's a good shepherd when it comes to children? It's the own biological mother and father. That's the good shepherd. That's the good shepherd that God designed. And anything else is a perversion of what is perfect. Well, that's for sure. That, I'm so glad you're explaining all of this. Because we had talked, I think it was even months ago about this. And we should have had a podcast back then. <laughs> I mean, have, have you been to, to family court at all? Have you been through the hell other parents have been through? Yeah, well, right now, and I, I have too, and that's how I got involved because I had my particular, I've been studying for 25 years on, on divorce and remarriage uh, and writing my book for 25 years for Bible college. And so basically when I went through uh, family court, I was able to see the you know see the real violations of everything that was happening the moral violations um and saying how could these judge make these decisions so i want to let you know right now that there is an attack not only on what's good but there's a direct attack on christianity and if you're a christian believing to raise your child in christian principles in christian ethics and christian morals okay you will be attacked and the way that the court system attacks you is that right now what they do is they'll assign therapy that's their way that they will attack christians so they'll typically say that, oh, this person needs therapy because um, really they don't have really anything against Christians. Um, but, you know, if you say, hey, spare the rod, spoil the child, or you believe mm -hmm. in headship and prince uh, patriarchy, or you believe in homeschooling or any of these other, you know, uh, uh, things, what the judge knows is that they can't attack you directly. But what they can do is they can assign you to have therapy. And when the judge assigns you to have therapy as a Christian, then he can kind of get you in a... Um, uh, in a long-gated, controlled environment because they're really looking to control you. Um, and they really don't want you to get the child unless you're willing to obey what the government says. Um, the government's not looking to give the children to the better parent. The government's looking to giving the child at the parent who most represents them, 
right? We worship God in our own image. And so what happens is the judge is going to give, or who's going to say the better parent is the one who looks more like him or her. And right now the judicial system is not run by Christians. It's run by the world. And the world is going to give the children to those who will parent like the rest of the world. You know, you're looking at public education where we have LBGTQ being pushed down, uh, shoved down the, the children's throats. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, uh, we have mandatory reporters, reporters so much so that that parents now are afraid to bring their children to hospitals uh, or bring them to school. Um, and knowing that child protection services can take children out of the out of the school now, um, and it's easier to take children straight, directly out of the school rather than to try to get them at home. So um, it's a like I said, this is a uh, it's a horrendous horrendous thing. If I could tell you of anything, it would be as a parent. Um, get your child out of the public school system, raise your child right now, because you better believe that morality is being, being taught to your children. It's not education. It's morality because they're trying to push an agenda. And that agenda says that, hey, um, whatever is legal is right. And right now, homosexual, homosexual couples and gay couples and trans, transgenderism, those things are legal. So when it's legal, it's right. So the way that they they try to brainwash or try to re-educate uh, the people, and they're doing that through your children, and they're doing that through the public school system. Well, I notice even in the libraries, they're doing it like um, library time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> they're doing some things there. I, I just don't know. I, I just cannot believe society has changed this much. I wish I had studied sociology more. And I just can't believe this is what's happening to our country and our children. And it's and not even our country, right? It's actually happened worldwide because the United right. States is the ruler. Because he, whatever nation has the most money, has the most fun, right? Because we have all the great movies and all the, you know, all the women have, you know, they're, they're, they're wearing anything they want. And, and the kids are, are, you know, all have, you know, driving cars and Xboxes. And, you know, this is like the American dream and, and everyone around the world wants to be like America. So what they do is they also want to emulate our constitution and emulate our laws. And by mm-hmm. doing that, they're also emulating our uh, immorality. Uh, and so right, right now around the world, even in strict Muslim and Jewish communities, uh, we're starting to see um, uh, the Western influence um, being predominant. Uh, you know, women divorcing men, uh, separation of children, uh, the United Nations being able to emancipate children with the uh, with the best interest of child standards that they have um, in their uh, convention um, and articles. So like a long story short, it's not happening just in America. It may have started here. Uh, it's, uh, well, it kind of started in England. Then some of the uh, the uh, rebelliousness started here in America. But again, if you have a child, um, if you know that you have a child, right? If right. you do a hundred things good, but then you swear and you cuss, if you, you know, bump your toe in the middle of the night, well, get what you, guess what your kid's going to remember. They're not going to remember the hundred things that you did good. They're going to remember the swear words, right? Because right. sin is always more pleasurable for the moment. And it's easier for people to pick up bad habits than it is good. And so the rest of the world is emulating the United States, but they they want to emulate the sexual morality and the perversity and, and everything else and the, the court systems and, and everything that we have here. Um, and the United States has actually, even though we were designed to be a Christian nation, um, uh, we have perverted a lot of this world uh, with our um, uh, Western world ideologies and, and um, perversity uh, in because we worship sex, right? We worship sex mm-hmm. outside of the marriage unit. That's what we worship. And uh, that has created a downfall of children being born out of wedlock, um, uh, abortions, and so forth and so forth. Well, that's very true. Um, it, it's, all, it's a global issue. And it's all these countries are complaining about is the, the same thing the United States parents are complaining about. So this is everywhere. This is going on everywhere and in every country. That's right. Yep. Um, where can people find your book if if they're looking for it? Where now my book they- is yeah sure. My book is free and it's a it's a Christian uh, Christian view regarding divorce or remarriage, looking at several different elements of of law, biblical, legal, 
Um, however, it's not dealing with family law. So I like to make it very clear that um, if you want to know doctrinally what we should do for divorce and remarriage, uh, 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 the book that I, I wrote with the help of uh, a lot, a lot of other scholars, um, that's a great book to be able to read. And I think it has some really solid doctrines uh, that hasn't been preached it before. It does. Yep. But, but if you're looking at family advocacy and your child's been taken by Child Protective Services, um, you're just not going to have the emotional or the mental capacity to read something like this, nor should you. Um, and the wonderful thing is there's a lot of people like myself, you, um, there was Michelle McDonald, who I met yesterday, and it's wonderful, uh, mostly Christians, but wonderful people who are willing to help you. So if there's any, any listeners right now who are going through a tough time or struggling time, get on your Facebook. There is tons of people who want to help you and what they can. Now, we have limitations as far as we can't necessarily give you legal advice, but uh, we can give you, we can educate you. Um, and right. there's a lot of people who are willing to do that for free and to hold your hand. And trust me, if you're listening to this program, chances are you have been hurt or you will be hurt or you know somebody who is hurt. Exactly. Exactly. Is there any last final words you'd like to add? Uh, this is, you know, just keep on keeping on. We got to keep on fighting um, to, to not lose hope. Trust in Jesus. As far as, uh, when we look at the Bible, these are um, looking more and more like the end, end times or the last days. Right. And in the last days, we see this one world government. We see the, the, you know, the dragon with the, with the head, 12 heads. And, and we see the, you know, the, the beast and, and the false prophet and the Antichrist and all that stuff. And we're starting to see that all come to play. Um, and every single religion for the first time in history has actually said that they believe their Messiah is coming and they believe their Messiah is coming soon. Um, this would be a very much like a warning signal. Uh, and if you look at morality, morality is a sign um, because Jesus said that he is going to come quickly, at least we destroy ourselves. So you can tell by the morality um, uh, and wars and rumors of wars and pestilence, the increase of that means that the time is drawing close. And you're like the third person to say that to me this week, believe it or not. Amen. Yeah, <laughs> really, amen. I'm not kidding you. I'm so glad I had you on as my guest, Michael Sand, on Slam the Gavel. It's a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate into parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption. Please join us again in the future for another exciting episode. I thank you again, Michael Sayan, for being on. Thank you so much. Yeah, praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.